Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Coco Zing, and more. An extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. Oscar Wilde famously said, one should either be a work of art or wear a work of art. The late 18th and early 19th centuries saw a rise in men who were developing a certain style. On one level, it was a new level of dress, tailored waistcoats, more finely cut pants, along with stylish cravats, elegant canes, lapel pins, and solid gold accessories. And as the 19th century progressed, their style became, for some of them, quite outrageous with velvet capes, hats with plumes, and silk stockings. From Beau Brummel to the famed Mr. Wilde himself, these men were called dandies. Many of these men expressed art not only in what they produced, but in what they wore and how they wore it, sending a clear message of liberation to their sometimes restrictive societies. Depending on how you define it, we can still find dandies today. Elegant men of style, passionate in their flair for fashion, and meticulous in their appearance. But wait, wasn't it? it isn't it? More than that? Who were these men from history who pushed traditional limits of dress as well as challenged accepted philosophies, social rules, and contemporary opinions about gender and sexuality? In today's show, we'll take a look at just what a dandy was and is today, how it differed from being an aesthete or just making sure your shirt was tucked in, your bow tie properly tied, and your shoes brilliantly polished. Some social critics have said that being a dandy isn't a style, it's a condition. My guest today will help us sort it all out and take a look at some of history's most famous dandies and see how they match up to men of a certain style today. And by the way, if you are now wondering as you survey your wardrobe, if you or someone in your life, if you might happen to be a member of this fashionable brotherhood, well, we'll give you some criteria and points to consider to help you perhaps find your own inner dandy. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where we journey into corners light and dark of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. Dandyism is far more, it seems, than just dressing well. It's almost a life philosophy that can combine both inner and outward artistic flair. 
A dandy can be flamboyantly outgoing or sensitive and introspective, and some dandies embody both. Despite their 19th century European roots, dandies today also exist far beyond the traditional stereotypes found in Western culture, and today can be found around the world in a variety of cultures and social traditions. It seems that criteria, then as now, centers on those who choose not to be bound by contemporary style or convention. My guest today, Nathaniel Lee Adams, knows the world of dandies firsthand and is with me here today to take a close look into the past, as well as see just how the dandy tradition has evolved and is present today. Nathaniel Adams is an author, designer, journalist, and maker of fine custom clothing. He holds a bachelor's degree from New York University, where he created his own major studying literature and the history of dandyism and fashion subcultures. He has co-authored two books on men's style with the photographer Rose Callahan, I Am Dandy, The Return of the Elegant Gentleman, and We Are Dandy, The Elegant Gentleman Around the World. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Daily Beast, Rolling Stone, Harper's Bazaar, The Chap, and Pipes and Tobacco magazine, among many, many other publications. He has spoken on dandyism and menswear at the Fashion Institute of Technology, the Pratt Institute, Parsons School of Design, and New York University. Natty, I am so honored to have you join the Gilded Gentlemen today. There is just no one more perfect to join me for this show. Oh, very pleased to be here. Thank you. So, Natty, I always like to give a visual to my listeners. So we are sitting, as I do for a number of my interviews, in the library of the Salma Gundy Club on Lower Fifth Avenue in New York. Now, the club was founded in 1871, and the library right here looks just as it did when the club came here in 1917. We have chandeliers and a leather sofa and these Windsor chairs and that wonderful smell of lots and lots of old books. Old right? paper, so, yeah. Right, and Natty, you look particularly perfect in <laughs> this room, this impeccably tailored suit Thank you. and all of that. So I, I think you're perfect sitting right here. Natty, I'm so grateful to you for joining me today because I think there are really some misconceptions about what a dandy is and and has been. And you particularly have looked at this not only from a se- really a serious academic angle, but also from a very modern social and cultural angle. So let's clear up what we can, right? So let's start <laughs> with a definition, sure. uh, which may have changed over time. So, so Natty, how do you define for us what a dandy is? When I first started studying dandyism, it was actually a pretty kind of easily prescribed thing in my mind. It was this period between the Regency period in England and the Edwardian period, let's say. And I was mainly focused on that because that's sort of the golden age of dandies. That's Beau Brummel to Oscar Wilde. And that's really where my obsession was when I first started studying it academically and historically. When I started working on these books with Rose, which are about contemporary dandies, at the time when she first when I first met her and she told me she was photographing dandies, I thought, oh, well, there aren't any dandies left. There aren't any real dandies. There's no one out there like Oscar Wilde or Beau Brummel or that kind of thing. And of course there aren't, but that's also because we don't have the historical perspective to say that this person was an important dandy figure. So I was sort of very skeptical about the idea of, of contemporary dandyism at all. I thought, well, how, how on earth would we define a dandy in the modern world in a way that would also include previous dandies? 
And I talked to so many people who are both academics, historians, and people who are dandies themselves or interested in fashion, and they all had different definitions of what a dandy was. Some of them were very, very strict. So we've had to kind of finesse our definition over time. What we realized is that Rose and I sort of knew a dandy when we saw one. We had a little like dandy detector. <laughs> we could think, oh, this person's legit. This person's really living the life. And part of what I say in the introduction of the first book is that a true dandy is someone who does it, who dresses up, who lives the life, who does it all, even when no one's looking. It's a sort of pathological thing for them. And so that was that was the first part of it, is that there was a, the question of sort of authenticity had to do with what, what their reasons were for doing it. Not that they didn't care what other people thought. I mean, obviously not, quite the contrary. They want the attention. But the fact that it was first and foremost something that they sort of couldn't help themselves from doing. And then we went around the world and we met all these people and we interviewed and photographed them. And as we did that, we sort of built our definition of dandies around that because one of the things you'll notice if you look at our two books is that the men we met are incredibly diverse in terms of ages, occupations, nationalities, skin colors, sexual orientations, all kinds of things. But not only that, they're very diverse in terms of their styles. So we have some people who are very old school conservative. We have some people who are, you know, very kind of out there vintage style who, you know, look like they've walked off of an MGM movie from the 30s. And then we had some people who were fashion forward, people who wore full faces of makeup and, you know, feather boas. And somehow we were like, well, how does all of this, what possible umbrella could we fit all of this under that would still be called dandyism? If it's, if it's this diverse a kind of breed. And so what Rose and I eventually came up with was that a, a dandy is a man, and that can now be kind of expanded a little bit, I think, who is obsessed with elegance, personal elegance. Well, perhaps not only personal elegance, but obsessed with elegance and who needs elegance in their life and is willing to pursue it, often at great cost to themselves. You know, they'll, people will ruin themselves to, to live an elegant lifestyle if they're true dandies. When I've heard you talk about this and read your writings about this, a word that comes back again and again, and you've used it a couple of times mm. today, is obsession. Can you talk mm. about the role of obsession? And you also use a sort of desert island image of a dandy, which I love. Can you share that too? <laughs> yeah. The desert island thing came about when I thought, well, okay, you know, what would be a situation where it's a sort of like, it's it's the my version of if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to see it, does it still make a sound? It's like if a dandy is on a desert island and there's no one around to admire him, does he still polish his shoes, you know? And so I came up with this idea of, of well, he would polish his shoes with squid ink and, and make a tie pin out of a fishbone and, and that kind of, that he would, he would find a way. But then you meet people, it's like, well, they were doing this long before there was social media. They didn't care who knew that they were doing this. They just, they were the weird person walking around, you know, the 11th arrondissement with a, a giant feather in their hat or something. And they didn't care if anyone, you know. Yeah. Now, Natty, you've said that you yourself are mm. actually not a dandy or you don't consider yourself a dandy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Have yeah, you revised that image or not? <laughs> I definitely revised that image. I'd, I'd walk that back. So I think when I, when I first started researching all this stuff, which was quite a long time ago. It was, you know, right when I was 18 is when I kind of started getting interested in all of this. And I think I, like most young people, I had a kind of Puritan streak about certain things. And I, I wanted things to be, I was obsessed with authenticity and kind of things being, I don't know if accurate's the word, but I, I wanted there to be kind of hard and fast rules about how things were, because I think that um, young people could sometimes cling to that when they're 
I don't know, trying to find themselves or something like that. I'm happy to be called a dandy now, but I don't go around introducing myself as one. And when I when I meet people who do go around introducing themselves as one, I'm like, are you really? I feel like that's kind of a... little suspect, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. yeah. One of the things that you've commented about, which I thought was really interesting and provocative, is you said there's something of the outsider about being a dandy, wanting to be the center of attention while remaining on the margins. Can you talk about that? What did you mean by that? If you look at sort of a lot of historical dandies, they they are kind of outsiders and misfits. They're not people who, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's in their time, whether it's their sexual orientation or their occupation or anything, they're usually people who were sort of on the fringes. You know, they're artists or they're writers, but there's some there's they're not usually you know, maybe with the exception of Benjamin Disraeli, they're not at the levers of power or something like that. But they want people to notice them without having to kind of play the typical game. They want to be, I think that's where the sort of flamboyance comes in. One of my favorite interviews in the second book is with a, a friend of mine, uh, Kamal Houston, who's a fantastic fashionable dresser. He talked about how he's very shy and particularly when he was growing up, it was very difficult for him to talk to girls when he was a young man. And he at some point realized, well, maybe if I get into clothing and I dress up, they'll talk to me. <laughs> and so this is kind of like a smaller version of what I'm talking about, I think. I think that dandies might by nature be somewhat, I guess, even introverted, perhaps, I think quite, quite a few of them, and that their dressing up is a way of overcoming that. Now, I'm sure all of my listeners are now giving themselves self-assessments as to whether they are dandies or whether <laughs> yeah. they have any dandies in their lives, right? Mm. So that sort of leads to my next question, Natty, is so do you think someone is born a dandy or is this something you can learn? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, I also think that there's, you can definitely kind of rank someone's dandyism and say like, okay, this person's like a true dandy. This person is the, the guy on the desert island. Or you could say, this person's a dandy in the sort of colloquial sense, like they are a well-dressed guy. They're a guy who likes to dress up and shine his shoes and that kind of thing. I think that the true dandies are definitely, there's something, there's some, I don't know, chromosomal thing inside them that makes them that way, that they just can't help it. Uh, I definitely feel that way. I feel, I don't, I don't feel whole if I'm walking around in shorts and flip-flops or something, you know? Um, I don't think you should. <laughs> don't I, try to change. I go to the swimming pool sometimes, yeah, you yeah. know, but um, yeah. One of the quotes of yours that I really loved and found fascinating, and again, really provocative, is when you said, style loses its power when it becomes mandatory. So what did mm. you mean by that? Yeah, that's become a really big area of interest for me in particular. One of the things that we, I asked everyone that we interviewed in both books was, if everyone else dressed this way, would you still dress this way? And some of them said, Oh, you know, I wish everyone dressed like me. You know, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't the world look lovely? You know, if you look, look at old photographs, everyone was was all dressed up. They looked so spiffy. And it's like, well, yeah, but that's because they had to. You know, that's because that's what was expected of them, and that was that was the status quo. And they weren't dandies. You know, they were regular people. The dandies were people who were dressed weird. You know, so I think this idea of I feel like the dandy, a dandy always has to push against whatever the status quo is. A lot of the people we interviewed, particularly in in England, went to schools where they had where they wore uniforms, 
And it's funny because I've met a lot of Americans who sort of take a fancy to that idea. Oh, wouldn't it be nice to go to school where you get to wear a tie and, and a blazer and all that? Uh, but the people in, in England were like, oh, no, you know, I've found ways to customize my uniform so that I look different from everybody else. And I think that's really important that there's a difference. It's not just dressing up. You see a lot of part of this current past couple decades of revival of interest in classic menswear um, has been quite conservative, and it's been about, oh, this is a proper way to dress, this is a timeless way to dress. And I feel like that's fine, and it's lovely that there's more people selling nice clothing out there, but that's not dandyism. Uh, I feel like dandyism has to be something that pushes against rules. So I want to shift a little bit and talk about history. And you've mentioned a couple of historic dandies, starting with Bill Brummel all the way up to Oscar Wilde. And I promise you, my listeners, we will get to we will get to Oscar Wilde because I think there are some interesting things to say about him. But let's sort of start at the beginning, right? Um, sure. Natty, shall we do this? So Bo Brummel, you know, arbiter of men's fashion, British, late 18th century, early 19th century. He's often referred to as the father of dandyism. So can you talk a little bit about who he really was and what he really did? Yeah. Brummel's a, an incredibly interesting character and a lot's been written about him. He was a man from what would now basically be called probably considers a somewhat middle class, upper middle class background. He wasn't nobility. His father was a butler in one of the royal palaces. So he had some money, but he wasn't nobly born or something like that. Uh, what he did have was he had an incredible style and an incredible sort of insane level of attention to detail that no one had really done before. And this was this was in the, the Regency period. And so it was sort of around the time of Napoleonic Wars and all this stuff. And it was at this moment of transition... And Brummel was at the forefront of this from upper class men wearing quite ostentatious things, furs and jewels and all, all that kind of stuff, to what Brummel created, which is the precursor to the modern suit, which is a much more reserved thing. So the first dandy was actually his revolution was in, in towards minimalism, but towards really fastidious attention to details. So he developed this kind of uniform of a frock coat, trousers instead of knee breeches, high Hessian boots polished with tassel, uh, and a perfectly, not a perfectly folded cravat, but a, a perfectly must cravat, you know, that looked like it had been deliberately, I mean, that that was deliberately folded in such a way to look a little bit messy, you know. This there's is an just, art to that, right? Yeah, well, there's definitely an art to that. And this is, this is a... Um, Something that anyone who, who's interested in fashion is familiar with to this day, you know, whether it's pre-distressed jeans or, or whatever, you know, he was he was doing that then. And around all of this, a legend built up around him, and and he certainly did nothing to tamp that down. In fact, he he definitely uh, promoted it. But you know, there were legends that he would the the cravats that he folded poorly, his butler would take out and throw into the street every morning after he'd dressed and say, "Oh, these are our failures," and that other. Oh, that's a little dramatic. Oh yeah, think? <laughs> oh, I mean, it's all incredibly dramatic and ridiculous. And he was, I mean, he was really kind of he was a jerk. He was really, but he was he was a witty jerk, and that became part of the dandy persona as well. And he, because of his skill at fashion, and his skill at being a snob, really, being a, a, a kind of social snob, made him an incredibly popular person in London at that time. And he became friends, best friends with the Prince Regent, uh, and they later had a fall, famous falling out and all this kind of stuff. But his, really, his entire contribution was to the art of men's fashion. And it was this minimalist revolution. Now, since then, I think some more kind of conservative 
dandyologists have said, oh, well, that means, therefore, that dandies are not flamboyant people. They're people who dress in a, in a subdu- with a subdued elegance. I don't think that's the case because I think that what's important about Rummel was not his specific style. It's that he was pursuing a type of elegance that was that bucked against the status quo. I think that's what was really relevant. And there was some story that he used to polish his shoes with champagne. Is there yeah, anything to that or I is mean, that just total mythology? No, I think that he probably made that up. Maybe he did it once. I don't know. He also, I mean, there were so many things like that. He claimed that he had his shirts uh, sent out to the countryside so that they could dry in the in the fresh air instead oh, of- Oh, I the, do that, don't you? Yeah. yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there are all these things that, that he- you know, claimed about himself or, or that other people claimed about him and he just sort of, you know, winked at, I guess. So let's go over to France for a little bit because mm-hmm. we'll, we'll come back to England, not to worry, but Charles Baudelaire, yeah. you know, early 19th century French poet, one of the first modernist yeah. um, French poets, he gets the name The Dark Dandy, mm-hmm. which I thought was just ever so interesting. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about Baudelaire? Yeah. So, I mean, that's also a good point that the, the dandyism as as we know it and as the, the term arrived is uh, a product of early modernity it's part of this this great upheaval in 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 thought it's it's has to do with the enlightenment it has to do with the age of revolutions it has to do with romanticism baudelaire was one of the first people to really intellectualize dandyism and to write about it in a way that tried to kind of put some theory and philosophy into it he was of course you know a great romantic himself and so everything and and a dandy and he was biased towards the dandy, and he and he wrote about it in a very romantic kind of tone. He also, where the sort of dark dandy thing comes from, is that the example of Brummel being the first dandy, Brummel's life ended in total uh, shambles and, and misery. He died uh, probably of syphilis in a convent in France, completely broke, going blind and near mad. Uh, he had no more friends left. It was a really sad kind of downfall. He basically gambled all his money away and or spent it on, you know, perfume and cravats and stuff. And and he, he died penniless with no friends. Um, and so right at the heart of dandyism and right at its inception, the central figure is this very tragic romantic character who flies too close to the sun, gets burned, and and crashes horribly. And I think Baudelaire and certain other French people at the time who looked at Brummel's life saw that as part of the romantic appeal of the dandy. And a part of it is this idea that because the dandy is a man completely obsessed with perfection, and perfection is not something that can ever truly be achieved, a dandy is ultimately doomed to failure in some way. There's this wonderful quote of Baudelaire. I just wanted to read it and then get your response to it related to exactly what you just said. Dandyism is the last flicker of heroism in decadent ages. Dandyism is a setting sun like the declining star. It is magnificent without heat and full of melancholy. Yeah. It's so Baudelaire. It's so Baudelaire. But but that's really... Yeah. What you're just talking about, right? Yeah, I mean that's what I mean, that's what you get from someone who translated Edgar Allan Poe, you know. Um, but it's it's yeah, there's definitely this kind of you know I, people have cited Milton's Lucifer as as a, a sort of dandy kind of figure. This quite smart and arch and witty kind of uh, fiend is part of the dandy, I think, part of the dandy archetype, I guess. Uh, certainly for those first hundred years, I also think his point about dandies arriving in times of decadence and great change is true as well. I think that 
I think that now we actually are living, I, and I wouldn't have said this 20 years ago, you know, I, I, but the political turmoil of our time, the social upheavals, I think it's not surprising to me that this is also a time when you're seeing an interest in and a return to, in some quarters, dandyism. You know, there's, there's, there was something that, and I think, I mean, we have the example of sort of famously nefarious dandies today, like Roger Stone or something, you know, who looks like a Batman villain or something like that in his, in his uh, you know, top hats and all this kind of stuff and his morning suits. So there is this kind of thing, I think, where the dandy shows up at times of great upheaval and decadence. Well, Baudelaire certainly predicted that. And we're going to come back to modern dandyism because I really want to get into that a little bit more with you. And with that, we are going to take a short break. I am going to readjust my bow tie. And then Natty and I will be right back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more. An extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lift or Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. Price drop? Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today we're looking at the fine art of dandyism with Natty Adams. So I do want to end our little historic tour here with, of course, some people think the greatest dandy of them all, and that is Oscar Wilde, the brilliant Irish poet, playwright who lived um, really the last, the whole last half of the 19th century. And I think for a lot of people, Oscar Wilde is the image that they have of a dandy with the flashy dressing and the capes and the carnations and the big floppy hats and the boots. But I think we maybe have to look a little deeper here, right, Natty? Because I want to quote you again here, because you said in an article for The Chap, in Oscar Wilde, dandyism found its apotheosis, and often its ignoble fall. Dandyism's reputation was tarnished with sin, decadence, and evil. But Oscar Wilde had watered, nourished, and tendered the flower of dandyism until it achieved its brightest and finest bloom. So that's quite a compliment that you give Oscar Wilde, but what did he really do? Let's define his version of dandyism. Yeah, so Wilde was much more flamboyant than Brummel, and I think of that period from Brummel to Wilde as like the golden age of dandyism or or the kind of original dandyism. And Wilde did a, a few 
quite interesting things. He, first of all, I mean, in the sense that he was much more flamboyant, he was out wearing velvet stuff. He was not dressed subtly, you know, to say the least. He wore big, loud check suits. He did all kinds of stuff. Another interesting thing about him is that he was retro at the time. You know, people sort of think of now people are retro now. They wear vintage clothes or they dress in vintage styles. Wilde was bringing back styles, you know, from way back in, in British history, the Cavaliers and stuff. You know, he was wearing silk hose and, and uh, like, you know, velvet kind of tunics and stuff. I mean, he really unusual stuff for the time. Um, so he was not a subtle man in the way that Brummel was. His revolution was not that. The other thing was he, I mean, he was a, a social lion, a literary lion. People in America, England, France, everywhere loved him. He was known as the funniest man of his time. But his downfall and his his prosecution and persecution for his homosexuality did forever link dandyism with sin and decadence and uh, in a way that it hadn't been before. I think dandies had been kind of suspect in the past, but I think part of it was this Victorian English Christian ideal of what a man is supposed to be. And this was in the same time that the empire was expanding and there was this idea that the the Englishman who was set to inherit the world was meant to be very masculine and very tough and very hearty and a, a sportsman, you know. The irony is, of course, Oscar Wilde was a big, strong guy who used to box when he was a young man and all that. So he was all those things. He was also gay. And that was just, you know, when that came out, not that it was a secret to anyone who bothered to look, that was too much for them to handle. And that was, he had to be made an example of, I think. And I think from that period on, that's when we got this association in the 20th century between dandyism and sexual deviancy or something like that, you know, that lasted through, through a good portion of the 20th century. And that still continues to, up until quite recently, I think, there was this idea that a, a man who pays too much attention to his clothes um, isn't, isn't a, a properly masculine man. I'm so curious. Your second book was about the international dandy. And so when you look at other countries, other cultures, are there things that you found were similar in international dandies? And then what were some of the biggest differences? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a really big question. I think that one thing is that dandyism is definitely, as a kind of philosophical or theoretical idea, very much a part of the Western tradition. It comes out of of Western classical liberal education and our, and that kind of understanding of things. So when it's exported, the places where we saw dandies were places that had experienced a lot of Western influence or, or colonialism or all kinds of things. We specifically in the second book we went to outside of Europe. We went to Japan, which post World War II has a huge amount of Western, particularly American influence. And so the men there, particularly men of that first post-war generation were very influenced by American Ivy style, by the preppy look. That's a huge part of Japanese men's fashion even today. And South Africa, which was really interesting because there you had generations of men who were oppressed to the point where they dressing wasn't something they even had any kind of control over. They wore what they, whatever they could get their hands on. I'm, t I'm speaking about black South African men uh, specifically. But now you've got a generation born after apartheid and we met men young men who were using this as an opportunity to kind of create their own post-colonial style that was influenced by Western clothing, because that is part of the tradition in South Africa. That's part of the influence there. But they were incorporating things like Zulu fabrics, 
elements that made it their own. And even in Japan, there were also people who did fantastic sort of syntheses of Western and Japanese styles. They would have a closet full of kimono as well as a closet full of suits, and they would kind of combine things. And and they all were very knowledgeable about the Western traditions of dandyism. And they talked about people like Baudelaire and, and Wilde, and they made comparisons to their own traditions, like a certain aspects of Japanese uh, samurai culture and aspects of classical Japanese aesthetics, which sort of famously focus on the kind of minimal elegance and um, very subtle kind of arrangements of things. But I am, I am glad that more people are getting joy out of, out of having an occasion to dress up. So Natty, in addition to being a writer and a speaker, you're a designer and a maker of fine custom clothing. So what does that really mean to have custom clothing made for you? Yeah, well, it's a terrific feeling, um, and it's hard to it's hard to go back to off the rack once you've done it. I mean, aside from the sort of obvious things like people who are tricky fits, you know, people who are very tall or have unusually long arms and things like that, people who have a hard time buying things off the rack, there's there's an obvious advantage for them to have things custom made for them. But I think even for the average person, is not so much the fine craftsmanship of it but the fact that you get to have a hand in designing it yourself. And that I sort of think of my clients as hiring me as a co-designer. You know, I, I hold their hand and walk them through the process of designing their own suit. And I give them my advice and opinions and I guide them in certain directions based on what they say they need and what I think works for them. But it's a collaborative process and that's the part of it that I really enjoy, that it's very one-on-one, -on -one, it's very person-based. It's not going into a store and there being a salesperson there who's, you know, maybe just working there for the summer and might as well be selling you a mattress. It's also, it's gotten incredibly popular now and you can get custom clothing at a lot of different levels. You know, I don't charge $6,000 for a suit like some places on in Italy or in England might do. I think of myself as a designer and the joy of having a custom suit is partly having something that fits you beautifully that's uh, really nice. And usually it's made of a nicer quality fabric and there's sort of advantages to it like that. There's material advantages like having more seam allowance so you can let it out or take it in as your body changes. The suits tend to last much longer over time. But for me, I think the really the real joy is getting to have a hand in designing something for yourself. But it all comes in the end out to how you feel about yeah. how you're dressing and what you're projecting, right? There's another quote that you've you've said, and I love this, you dress based on how you're feeling, but you feel better depending on how you're dressed. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of my sort of, I don't know if mission is the word, or one of my aims with, with everything I do related to clothing, uh, whether it's suit making or writing or speaking, is that I want people, and particularly men, because they haven't it's only recently that this has become popular with them again. I want them to to rediscover the pleasures of dressing. Where is a good place for someone to start if they've been listening to our conversation today and decided that they or someone in their life needs sort of yeah. an upgrade in the way they think about how they dress? What would you advise is a good place to start? In the old days, we'd say, oh, get a new tie. But I'm sure that's not the answer today. Yeah, you know, I mean, I I love ties, I love neckwear, and I think that um, because we've had this this long period of casualization, ties are kind of chic again, a little bit uh, maybe 
probably not transgressive, but they're at least it's an unusual thing to wear. So people are wearing it more. Um, people who want to, you know, look different. It's not a symbol of conformity in the way that it used to be. What I would say, especially to young people, and this is something that I personally have experience with, and that absolutely nearly everybody we interviewed in both of our books said is go and buy vintage clothing. And don't just buy vintage clothing, but go thrifting. Go to, don't go to like a vintage store or buy stuff on eBay or just do that. Take time and dig through stuff. You know, try to, it's, it's harder now because stuff gets, you know, picked up and put on eBay by, by dealers. But if you can go to some place where there is a big old Goodwill thrift store or something and you can spend an afternoon <laughs> digging through stuff and finding stuff, that's where you'll kind of learn about style and your own preferences that way. And you can do it cheaply. And I think for a lot of the dandies that I've met, and this includes myself, when we were younger and we didn't have a whole lot of disposable income, what we did was we went and bought vintage clothes. And then, you know, we maybe spent a little bit to have it tailored to us. Or, oh, I like did that. that in college. Yeah. I'd go to the Goodwill and my parents were very concerned about what I was doing. <laughs> but but I got these great clothes. And yeah. at that point, it was before vintage was a thing. Sure. So for us, it was just yeah. a beautiful coat overcoat, a beautiful overcoat from the 1940s that I wore yeah. all through college that, you know, probably got snapped up today. I think I paid yeah. $3 for it or something, right? But yeah. yeah, no, it's great. I mean, you learn about, you learn a lot about clothes. You learn about how clothes used to be made versus how they're made today. I, I think that's the kind of thing that I would recommend for someone who's looking and it applies to anyone, you know, any gender, anyone who is interested in like really exploring their own personal style. A good place to start is by digging through other people's old stuff and seeing what, what was there before and finding ways to make it your own. You said in, in a talk at the conclusion of one of your talks, which I, I so loved, you said, this all too brief life is a special occasion and that we should all dress up for it. Is that really your overall message in all that you say and do and design? Yes, emphatically so. I think, uh, yeah, I think I want people to really, if they're interested, you know, I don't want to drag people kicking and screaming into, into dandyism, but if I want people who are not dandies to at least have available to them the joy of dressing and to at least have some appreciation and understanding of it in the same way that they might not be chefs or they might not be gourmets themselves where they can still appreciate a good meal. Natty, I cannot thank you enough for joining me today and bringing all of your insight into what a dandy was, is, and most importantly, of course, can be. It's really so much more than just waistcoats and silver yeah. tie pins, right? <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks awfully for having me. It was a pleasure. And we'll have to find another project to uh, to bring you back. Oh, I mean, I feel like there's, there's, plenty, there's plenty here already for a, a double <laughs> so episode. So much more to it. talk about. And to my listeners, I encourage you to follow Natty and his style on his website, nattyadams.com, and sign up for his newsletter and perhaps have him make you the perfect suit. And with that, I thank you for joining me for another episode of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. I invite listeners to become patrons of the show at patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support helps me with the costs of research, studio rentals, and production costs, and allows me to create, write, and record each show. Patrons receive a range of bonus content and advance notice of my Gilded goings-on.
I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold? Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more. An extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP.